Well, um, I'm excited to be here today. Um, thrilled to be back at Pain Week. I'm thrilled to have you here. We fussed last year because uh, the advanced practice track was in a very small room, so there was people sitting on the floor. So be thankful you're not sitting on the floor or in your friend's lap because people were last year. So we have a good size room. And initially when I walked in, I thought, oh, we might not fill it up, but we've done pretty good. So I'm not going to ignore one side of the room. I'll talk to each of you. But um, this is truly a subject that is near and dear to my heart. A lot of things are coming on the scene about naloxone. Now, I would say as providers, and I think I speak for most everyone, I've done a lot of case review and expert uh, witness uh, across the, the United States, um, and I've not really seen practitioners in pain set out to do harm. Not, not very often, I won't say never, but not really set out to do harm. Do poor outcomes happen? Absolutely. They happen. They're very unfortunate. We, we never want that to be under our watch, but it happens. Um, so I think what we have to do as pain practitioners is our due diligence to safely prescribe opioids if we feel appropriate, and then take that next step and when to appropriately prescribe, prescribe a medication like naloxone for the patient um, to truly begin to save lives. I've had to change verbiage over the last few years when I talk to patients because if you mention the word overdose to an, a chronic pain patient, they look at like surprised and say, I'd never do that. And what we're talking about is not purposeful overdose. Um, you know, patients, many, most of our patients do not overdose on our medications because they take a handful of medication to end their life purposefully. But what in fact they'll do is maybe they've been on a dose for a long period of time, stayed on that same dose, and they've aged. Their kidneys age, their liver ages as they age. And I always tell people, you come in with what you usually, you come into the world and leave with the same parts, most likely some removed before you leave. But in all reality, we don't have many getting many replaced um, or new. So they age. Um, and so we have patients that are left on doses for long periods of time maybe, and those doses aren't appropriate anymore because of kidney insufficiency, liver insufficiency, so we have problems there. And then we have patients that maybe they take too many, to, the pain starts increasing, so then they take more doses than they need. So it's not purposeful overdose, but it's taking too much. So when you break it down to the patient, explain that, they say, oh, now I see what you're saying. So I think we owe it to our patients to provide the best safe care. Now, we could say the best safe care would be to quit prescribing opioids. We've been beat over the head by the CDC guidelines. We've been beat over the head by every state um, in the nation about what we need to do. Pharmacies are taking action by only supplying so much into their pharmacy. Um, the supply and demand, everybody's trying to answer the call of overdose and the opioid epidemic. But I think we as prescribers do hold the key in that we need education of appropriate prescribing, but also other medications that we might need in our arsenal to care for our patients better and more appropriate. I do have disclosures for you today. I will tell you I'm not associated with any of naloxone companies. Um, these are all other medications, but these are my disclosures, and I disclose all no matter what I'm speaking on. I want to talk just a little bit about the opioid crisis. Nobody's going to look at me and go, wow, I didn't even know 
No, it's all over the, the papers, and we're all being scrutinized um, every single day because there is an opioid crisis. And in all reality, the opioid crisis is less likely about our chronic pain patients, but it's the hands that get a hold of the medication that abuse and misuse. So what I'll tell you is when I was approached with the idea of naloxone and using naloxone in my practice, I actually have people in the audience who approached me about the naloxone, I said, I don't do that. I don't work with abuse and I, my patients aren't abusing my medicines. These aren't as you would crack addicts or things like that. They're not doing that. I don't need this. And then it got broken down to me and I talked to, you know, and we're going to go into really who does need it. And it's, it was eye-opening to me to say, yeah, maybe I do need that um, in my practice. Maybe I do need protocols. Since that time, I've developed protocols and put them in place in our office says across Tennessee um, to truly get um, everybody on board about when to prescribe and how to prescribe it. So we're going to look at potential opioid overdose potential as well as naloxone, how to prescribe it. Because here's the other thing. You can prescribe it all day long to a patient that lives by themselves. You give it to them, it's going to really be of no use. Because the patient is not going to know when they need it. That is too late. So it's really about educating the family. And I really have broken it down with some steps that you can educate your patients as well as family members or friends or whoever's going to be responsible for the medication because they need to know when and how to use it because it can become scary to them um, to know. And again, this opens up another opportunity to have an education when you are putting in a medication that they might have to use if this medication that they're taking goes wrong it really does give them an opportunity to see the dangers that opioids can provide so what do we know this is not new information and you'll notice we're still we're using some older data it really hasn't changed a whole lot maybe the numbers have risen a little bit um, but it hasn't changed Here's what we know. We know that any improper use of an opioid can cause harm. It can cause death. It can cause a visit to the hospital. Um, and we know that that risk, so Lortab and Percocet is not safe, um, but we do know the risk increases with extended release and long acting, obviously. If you have a product that can stay on board longer than another product, that's going to be more risk of staying on board and causing problems with the patient. So what do we know? Well, 34.2 million Americans, 12 and older, in 2011 said they'd used an opioid for a non-medical purpose sometime in their life. And then, take a step back, we know that there was 425,000 ED visits for non-medical uses of opioids, and methadone was involved in 30% of those opioid prescription deaths. Okay, so we could say, all right, do away with methadone. Methadone for no one. And I'll tell you, my prescribing of methadone over the last 15 years has changed. We prescribed it. I've always had a healthy respect for methadone. I've always done a lot of education when I put a patient on methadone. But nonetheless, there are changes being made, and there's a lot of states weighing in on whether or not methadone should be used for patients, in pain, how to use it, things along that line. So I'll tell you, I mean, we've, and with staggering, um, staggering information like this, I would say that a lot of people are shying away from it. What I see, if I see methadone, I see it oftentimes used in primary care and oftentimes used inappropriately when I've seen patients in an inpatient environment. EKGs weren't appropriately done. 
some patients were given large doses because we know there's this large dosing, there's really not a dosing maximum window of methadone. We could agree that there's probably a level you shouldn't go above because patients oftentimes don't get any more efficacious results from it, but nonetheless, methadone is a problem. And the other part of it, why? It's innately has a half-life of about 82 hours. It was not formulated. It's not an extended-release product. It's simply an extended-release product in and of itself. It's how it's made. So it stays on board for a very long period of time. And again, I would probably say if we want to, I like to, to pick out data because I think a lot of our data is skewed. But I wonder if we pick out that 30%. I doubt they were chronic pain patients. How many do you think were chronic pain patients? Probably very few. They got into the wrong hands. But nonetheless, we have a misuse and abuse problem. I've stood here and said, well, I don't see those patients, right? We, we recognize that these patients can come through our door at any point. But nonetheless, we know we have problems. Now, let's tease out some other statistics. So this is death rate by all drug poisoning and, 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 the, and drug poisoning is greater than vehicular collisions. Now, let's tease it out. This is including not just opioids. It didn't just say opioids, so let's make that clear. I don't like when things get, you know, the media is good at that. They skew out the data and they scare everybody to death. What did that say? Drug poisoning. That includes warfarin, Plavix. It includes any other medication, any drug poisoning, any medication that's a toxic level that needs to be monitored, that causes a problem, that's any drug. So keep that in mind. But we do have it teased out here for you. And it is, um, in the purple, is the unintentional drug poisoning. We also have drug poisoning in and of itself. We have all our poisonings. Then we have, as you can see, motor vehicular uh, collisions. So we have some Good things going on there, but nonetheless, you can see everything's on the rise. So, but keep in mind, we're talking all. We're not just talking opioids here. Now, let's talk about opioids. Um, number of deaths. As you can see, male and female, who would you think more than more? It's more male. If we have misuse and abuse, it's more male than female. Doesn't mean females don't, but more male than female. But nonetheless, as you can see, we have a large portion, and as you can see, they are steadily on the rise. Between 2013 and 2014, the male population climbed quicker than the female population. Now, let's tease it out again. Who are we talking about? Who usually um, comes in for chronic pain management? Men more than women? The opposite. Women more than men will present. But men oftentimes will seek other means to get opioid prescriptions. So just keep that in mind who we're talking about. Now, here we go. Intentional, there we go, the opioid, the overdose. We don't want you to overdose. I would never overdose. You're correct, 17% would never intentionally overdose. But what we have is 83% in 2014 unintentional opioid mortality. Whether they got it, took it inappropriately, whether they were an appropriate chronic pain patient and accidentally misuse their medication. Keep that in mind. Think about it. Two deaths per hour. Two deaths per hour um, from an opioid mortality, from an opioid overdose. Keep that in mind. Again, I want to give all this data, but I also want to say that I am an absolute advocate of opioids appropriately. Doesn't mean opioids for everyone, but opioids appropriately. But we've got to know the statistics and we've got to respect the statistics. Um, as we take care of our patients. 
Because um, I think that's where the United States is going. They say, well, just get rid of it. It's not an option. It's not an option. Somebody just approached me and asked me about non-opioid therapy because a lot of conferences really focus just on opioid therapy. Well, it's the most dangerous, so I think we spend a lot of time trying to make certain that our participants understand and, again, have a healthy respect. But nonetheless, it, they work, so they have their place. So um, concurrently daily dosages. Well, what did we find? And, and this isn't new data either. You can see above 100 milliequivalents of morphine, the overdose risk by, for chronic pain patients chronic pain patients, increases substantially. So that's probably why some states have weighed in, Tennessee being one, to say, okay, if you have a patient on more than 100 milliequivalents of morphine, they need to be seen by a pain provider. If you have the, or, you know, if it's 80, if it's 100, if it's 120, whatever the numbers are, but you can see where it came from, okay? So we have studies to support that above that, the risk of overdose escalates by the increase of dose substantially. So nonetheless, we need them in the right place, and I'm not going to tell you, well, above 100, you've got to send them. I recognize we have rural communities. I recognize we have an access issue. The state of Tennessee wrote chronic pain guidelines. I was the only nurse practitioner to set on that task force, and they wrote guidelines for Tennessee providers to follow. Who's in Tennessee here? I know I have a couple, a few. Hello. Hey, y'all. Um, okay, I'll come back to Vegas. But nonetheless, they, they wrote guidelines, and so they had to decide on what is who, what goes where. The problem was who they called a pain provider was impressive because they took out palliative care. They took out a lot of specialties that were very appropriate, and so they just had this small pool. Their idea was if you don't provide the service, they all go away. Well, that doesn't happen. So now we do have heroin issues, not saying that we wouldn't if we didn't have this, but we have increasing heroin issues, and we have a lot of patients, and we have a lot of providers saying, look, I've got these patients, they've got to be taken care of, and I've got to be able to do it. But as you can see, it's a knee-jerk. We have some statistics that would show you why, we're, why some people are saying what they're saying, but keep that in mind with your patient population. So let's look at opioids. You know how they work. Well, they provide this analgesic effect. We have new opioid receptors throughout our body. Why do we have opioid-induced constipation? Because we have new opioid receptors in our belly. And so when those get activated, then patients get constipated. But when it actually goes into the right spot, and I've always said if we can make, so here, who, where's our chemist? If we can make an opioid that would only adhere to the mu opioid receptors in the peripheral nervous system or central nervous system and nowhere else, we might be pretty rich. So we need to work on that. But nonetheless, what happens? The binding of the mu opioid receptors occur, and it elicits, and I'm not going to go into deep depth because I know somebody's going to come back and go, it's a lot more entailed in that than that, and I get it. But it elicits that analgesic effect in the brain. It's been used for thousands of years. We've used it for acute and chronic pain. We know it works. And it truly is still the mainstay. A lot of things have come and gone. We talk a lot about multidisciplinary approaches. We, I absolutely am an advocate for that. But there's still a mainstay of opioids. What are the benefits? Well, you would agree, pain management. Well, we also have cough suppression. Probably could say we could use something else for that. 
Uh, we actually use some of it, Suboxone being one, treatment, dependence, and abuse. We also have adverse effects, and I would want to point out to you, respiratory depression is one of them. Um, we have constipation listed number one because it's the most common, but respiratory depression can occur with our patients taking an opioid. So in opioid-induced constipation, uh, constipation, no, respiratory depression, what do we get? That CO2 drive is basically removed or limited with opioids. So the opioids bind into the mu receptors in the brainstem, which suppresses that chemo, chemoreceptor response to hypercapnia. So it, you're, you're, you forget to breathe. It's what those opioids do. Now, not every single opioid and not every single patient, every time they take it, but there's that potential. So you take more doses together. The patient increases their doses. When are patients most at risk for respiratory depression? 24 to 72 hours after initiating an opioid or titrating an opioid. Doesn't mean it goes out the window any other time, but those are the big things. Why? Because you're building up in that hypercapnia that response to hypercapnia is blunted even more during those times. So opioids depress that patient's respiratory drive. Again, what happens? Well, if it's prolonged, they get hypoxemia, brain injury, and ultimately leads to cardiac arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, and ultimately death if not treated early, hence naloxone. Um, and then the opioid-induced sedation. So that precedes usually the compromise. They get really sleepy, not acting right, hard to rouse, right? But that precedes that respiratory compromise that may occur. So let's look at naloxone. So how does it occur? Well, we have our mu opioid receptors, okay? And those are activated with heroin. We add this here to say, yes, it can be used for that. But heroin and prescription opioids, so they adhere to the same receptors. They get the pain relief, which is what our chronic patients get. I have a real problem when a lot of our patients, when we talk a lot about chronic pain patients, hives, liking, that's, that's misuse. That's abuse, really, is what we're talking about. What do our patients get? They get pain relief. That's what they're looking for. Um, not, and again, I, I know our populations, but what you also get with other, with other drugs, heroin, pleasure, reward, and subsequently respiratory depression. What happens, of course, with the naloxone is that it's a heavier, basically, molecule. Again, not going into a deep chemistry lesson, but heavier molecules, so it will offset the opioids, allowing them to be broken down and excreted and takes the place. So it reverses that respiratory depression um, and, opioid, and causes an opioid withdrawal. So let's look at who's at risk. I hope this is an aha moment if you're not already on board with the idea of prescribing naloxone to your pain patient. Now here's what I'll tell you. I don't give it to every single patient that walks through the door. They don't get a prescription. But what about your patients? And again, I'm in chronic pain management, so I get a lot of opioid dependence. They've come to me. They've been on opioids for a long period of time. I may continue that. I may change the regimen. But nonetheless, they are opioid dependent. Okay? So opioid dependence, that's a person that's at risk. Any patient in your clientele that's had one or more ER visit in the past six months, who is that? Well, a lot of our elderly population, right? Um, keep in mind they're at risk. Hospitalized one or more days in the past six months. What do we have? Could they be in for end-stage renal? Could they be in for worsening kidney issues? Could they have 
a multitude of things, but nonetheless, just because they've been hospitalized one or more days in the past six months. Anybody on an extended release or long-acting opioid? Anyone? Anyone on methadone? I told you the statistics. 30% of all prescription overdoses occur with methadone. So I think we should absolutely say methadone and naloxone go hand in hand if you are prescribing that. Chronic hepatitis or any patients with cirrhosis. Anyone on an antidepressant, they're at increased risk. Now we might say, well, they're at increased risk of misuse and abuse. We know opioid risk tools, risk stratification, depression can increase a risk of misuse and abuse of medications, even in the chronic pain patient. Bipolar, schizophrenia. Ever treated for chronic pulmonary disease? How many of your patients have COPD? I have a multitude. A multitude that come in every day wearing their oxygen and barely making it up the flights of stairs or on the elevator, making it, they need naloxone. Obviously, what? They don't have a big area of accident in their life. You know, they don't have a lot of room um, to have any problems pulmonary wise. Chronic kidney and renal disease. How many, anybody here not, have I not described uh, of this, this list? Anybody not your patients? Can anybody go, I don't have any of those. I would also add to this list, how about those with sleep apnea or morbidly obese? Well, welcome to the South. By the way, the statistics just came out in the South, and Tennessee, Mississippi moved from number one to number three on the most obese. Anybody know number one now? Louisiana. The Cajuns. Yes. I was so excited to see us move. Sorry, Louisiana. Somebody has to be number one. For once, it's not Mississippi. Um, but nonetheless, this is our patient population. It changed my life. Now, I'm going to give um, credit where credit is due. They, Caleo gave me this information, and they really did. That's a company that does um, produce naloxone in one form or fashion. But nonetheless, this is eye-opening. It's eye-opening. And so, truly, obviously, you can think about my protocols. They included every bit of this. These are my patients that need them. So what do you teach the family? Again, we can prescribe it to the patient. The patient's not going to do a whole lot with it if they ever need it. They're not. Um, and, and that's the first thing they'll say. Well, what am I looking for? And I always tell them, if you have any question, give it. Now, you're going to have a very upset patient if they weren't respiratory depressed. But nonetheless, that's okay. Much rather have that than dead. So, um, and, and truly use the words. Patients go, oh. And I'm surprised patients that come to me um, that say, oh, really? And they'll say, oh, I don't want acetaminophen. I don't want acetaminophen. Oh, those NSAIDs, they'll cause GI bleeds, and there's something with your kidneys. But they cannot figure out the problem of the oxycontin and the oxycodone they've been on for 10 years. Where have we gotten? How have we gotten here? So nonetheless, I talked to them about this. Are they unresponsive to stimulation, to yelling? And I teach them about, you know, rubbing the breast spoon. How do we wake them up? Sternal rub, slow, shallow, or no breathing. So, you know, we don't have to wait to no breathing. If we can't wake them up and they're not breathing right, we give this medication. Turning pale, blue or gray, lips and fingernails, choking sounds, again, Patients kind of wait around. I'm going to give you my story. Um, and it's not naloxone. It's actually epi. 
Uh, I was camp nurse this year, haven't given epi in many years, always been a great camp, whatever. And uh, I had a kid that got a hold of a nut, and she only thought she was allergic to cashews. And whose daughter gave her the pistachio nut? Mine. In the whole camp, mine. Um, So, of course, she has this reaction. And what did I do? I just kept watching her. Which she was not laid out. She was not unconscious, but I kept waiting. I don't know what I was waiting for. You know, but I did. So think about our families. You might be like, well, maybe he's going to just wake up. Maybe they're just going to wake up. I did the same thing. I did give the epi. Yes, it's been a while, but nonetheless. But, and I did swear my child to never give anybody another nut again. But nonetheless, um, what are we waiting for? So again, we really do need to educate the patients. One thing to give them a prescription is a whole other thing to actually educate them on how to use it. Now, some of our uh, available naloxone therapies will give them the information. Some will give them a trainer, the auto-injectors. They're awesome, and I'll talk about it. But nonetheless, we need to talk to them what to do. Now, what do we not do? And you'd be surprised. Don't put the patient in the bath. They could drown. Um, don't induce vomiting. Don't try and wake them up, give them something to drink, anything like that. Again, I know I'm talking to practitioners, but we've got to break it down for our patients. We really do. Um, No over-the-counter, nothing, no-dose. People will actually start trying to give them no-dose to wake them up. Apparently niacin, I don't know enough about niacin and how that would work, but nonetheless, um, no. If we have naloxone, we're going to give naloxone, right, if there's a problem. So how do we respond? Again, these can be printed off the Internet, rubbed awake, give naloxone. So if I'm going to prescribe this, I want them to know when to do it. You try and wake them up, they do not wake up, they get naloxone, period. Right? Now, we have options. There are all types of studies out there on which one you want to do. What I'll tell you is injectable is obviously the best way to go. We have the option of auto-injector. Now, these instructions are not from the auto-injector because it talks about injecting into arm and upper thigh muscle one cc at a time. Again, new vial. That's not really, you can get them preloaded. Obviously, the auto-injectors come with the medication in it, and it's the same idea as the epinephrine. Now, we don't work with, I don't work with myelin either, so it's not like the EpiPen that just skyrocketed by $600, so don't hit us for that either. But nonetheless, injectable is always the best way. You have intranasal as an option. We really are not prescribing, and I'm seeing that intranasal is not really being prescribed um, from offices. More than anything, it's being with EMTs who'll have it, or um, police will have this. And obviously, they're educated how to squirt the vial into the nostril. Um, You want to do it fast to get a fine mist. What do you want to do? I want the quickest, I want the easiest, and I want the patient to get it. So... Then you tell them, call 911. Obviously, give them the information. The patient isn't breathing. Tell them what you gave them. Let them know you gave the naloxone. Now, let's look at formulations. We have naloxone for the medical setting. Obviously, we've had naloxone for many years. I remember giving Narcan as an RN many years ago um, on an oncology unit a, a time or two when they just got too much medication. But it vial syringe, it was injected. Um, In fact, even then, we had the pre-filled glass um, injectable cartridge that we used. 
Now, your other option, again, you will see naloxonasal spray, but what I'm seeing most is auto-injector being prescribed. I want something a patient will use, I want some, a family will use, and I want it to work, and I don't want them to stress. What happens in those times? In a time of great stress, how likely are we, you know, we have to think about it. We have to, what about a patient that is not, a family that is not trained, um, is not a healthcare provider, anything. We want them to get the easiest way possible. And obviously, and, and we have, and we even have research that supports the auto-injector versus the injectable. So you get a vial and a syringe, you have to pull it up, you have to, this and that. Which one do you think worked better and quicker and got on board quicker? An auto-injector. And the auto-injector is, will talk to you, and so it tells the patient exactly what to do. Um, it, tells them, or it tells the patient, tells the family exactly how to do it. And again, in a high-stress situation, we need quick access to this medication. Again, I'm not here selling you a drug, but nonetheless, I want patients saved, and if we need it, I want it to work. And then, of course, other options are the intranasal. And again, that's often usually with um, EMTs and the like. And here's your options. Again, approved for hospital use, different options. 40 years, we know it works, right? How many people as RNs, NPs, wherever in the hospital setting, physicians, whoever, use the, this? How many have ever given it? Yeah, we know it worked, right? Yeah, it did its job. They wake up screaming usually. They love you in a few minutes, but nonetheless, it works, and I'm okay with that. And then the take-home injectors. So you can see there's the nasal injector. That's the option. And then, of course, the auto-injector. And not only that, what do they get? You get a trainer, um, and then with a prescription, they'll get two of those um, MCO vials is what is available to the patients. Very quick, very easy, and again, I want it if they need it. Other options. Now, these aren't FDA approved in a combination, but these are options, not widely in retail, but again, law enforcement may have it. It's the intranasal delivery kit, the cartridge, the syringe, the nasal atomizer. Requires multiple parts, substantial training. Do you want a patient trying to do this? Um, sorry, a family. Do you want families trying to do this before they have to give that? No. If you do, that's fine. I want any Narcan, Naloxone you can get in the house, but nonetheless, I'm looking for the quickest, the easiest, and the one that's going to be the most successful with my patient. So what happens? So we looked at IM uh, versus the intranasal. What did we see? Two different studies showed us, again, I would say small studies, but nonetheless, um, 82% had more than 10 uh, respirations with that IM injection, however they got it. We're not talking auto-injector, we're talking IM injection. 82% versus 63 intranasal. So I think we'd all agree, inject it, inject it, inject it. 13% only required additional naloxone. As you can see, it's a little bit lower, but nonetheless, less required additional, 78% versus 72% in this study. So as you can see, it's definitely higher in the top study, but nonetheless... IM injections, just like we've always heard and read, you know, work. So we really want to get the right route to the right patient. We need a plan. Every single patient that is prescribed an opioid really does need to understand what kind of medication they have and the risk of the opioid therapy. Not only the risk 
of to the patient, but what about the risk to the kids in this house? What about the risk to other people coming in and out? It's a risk. And what was not on that, and I've actually talked to a few providers, is they're giving it, if there's any children in the home, they're giving naloxone with an opioid prescription because there's children in the home. If grandma is the main caretaker of children, then they get a naloxone prescription there, not for the patient, but what if somebody else got a hold of that medication. I won't say we've taken quite those steps, but that's something to consider as well because it's a risk to anyone, not just the patient that medication is prescribed to. And we do know mistakes can happen. Patients can take medication too closely. Patients can double up, having a really bad pain day. One works usually, but I don't think it'll work today, so I'm taking two. And then I'm going to take something else on top of that. Or they're pairing things with what? Benzodiazepines. We're seeing a lot of overdose risk paired with opioids and patients with benzodiazepines. That is another issue there. Again, we could go with back to the um, antidepressants, benzodiazepines. So we definitely want people at their best to be able to save our patients or whomever is at risk um, with these medications. The role to adherence is important and we want them to adhere to their opioid therapy. That's why if you have a patient coming back and back and they're out of medications when they come because they need more or they're going to just take their medications how they prescribe it, then maybe opioid medications are not appropriate for this population. Maybe patch therapy only where they don't have control of taking it because, again, there is an important need of opioid therapy compliance. We want to obviously talk about, which we have, recognize an opioid emergency how to respond and manage those opioid emergencies, and the need for responsive preparation and practice, equip the patients with take-home naloxone, the patient and the family member. So I usually try my best to get family to come in. If family cannot come in, I will give it to the patient to make certain the family gets it, and we do our due diligence in that way. If there's someone living alone, I make certain a friend that checks on them knows also where the medication is. And the recommendation is to, re, to um, re-prescribe yearly. Same idea with the EpiPen. You should always ask three things about EpiPens, and I would dare say you need to ask these three questions with naloxone. Number one, have you had to use it? Okay. Be, surprisingly, some patients might not tell you they had to use that naloxone and had a trip to the emergency room. Have you had to use it? When? And where is it now? Where's your naloxone right now? Nine times out of ten, they don't know or they lose it. So we do need to be reassessing this often of where that naloxone is in their home, who knows about it, who knows what to do. And what do we know? We have patients that change houses. They change family members they're living with. They go from living alone to with somebody. So we need to make certain that it is in the home that the patient is residing in in case it is needed. Short, sweet, to the point, um, actually done just a bit early, but I will be happy to answer any questions, any comments regarding naloxone therapy. Anybody have any experience using naloxone therapy? Okay, 